This is The Guardian. Today, five years on from California's deadliest ever wildfire, how does a town rebuild? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm uh, TG, uh-huh. Rock Creek Powerhouse. Yep. Hey, I just got a report of a fire okay. above Poe Dam on Highway 70. Poe Dam? Yeah, on the railroad side, okay. under the transmission line. It was November 2018, and in a remote canyon in far northern California, the weather was unseasonably warm. Very little rain had fallen in recent days, and the winds were high. Early one morning, an overhead power cable that had long needed replacing sparked onto the parched ground below and started a fire that would prove catastrophic. We're in Concow. There looks like a fire coming over the hill. The first town it hit was Concow. It was as if this firestorm just descended upon them. It was dark, it was smoky, it was incredibly hot, and people there had no warning at all. One family edged to the edge of the lake to try and get away from the flames, and then when the fire started burning into the reeds at the edge of the lake, they actually had to just get into the lake and swim for it because the fire was threatening to engulf them. One woman ended up sheltering under a truck while the fire was moving around them, and she actually stabbed a hole into the tire to try to get some of that air from the tire because the smoke was just so overpowering. The wildfire was moving faster than scientists previously thought was possible, and soon it reached a town called Paradise. We're starting to get some reports of fire in Paradise now. It hit the eastern edge of the town first. Although Paradise had an emergency warning system that was meant to send out robocalls, reverse 911 system, they called it, this system was very quickly overwhelmed. Cell towers were probably burned down before these messages could go out. And I want to know where the fire is. Ma'am, there's uh, engines en route. I don't know exactly where it's at right now. Although the town did have an emergency evacuation plan, it had designated a couple of routes to get out of town. When you have a fire that is outpacing the traffic on the road, setting fire in many cases to the cars themselves, all of a sudden you have gridlock and you have gridlock in the middle of an inferno. There's explosions everywhere. Oh my God, people's tires are popping. People jumped out of their cars, took to the streets to try and escape the flames on foot. And it very rapidly became clear that escape for many people was impossible. Are they coming for us? Come on. Watch out, watch out. Yeah! 
85 people died in the fire at Paradise, and 90% of the buildings were destroyed. The damage was total. Danny Anguiano is a reporter at Guardian US. She grew up near Paradise. She used to work on the town's newspaper, and she cares a lot about the people who called it home. With her colleague, Alastair G, she's kept in touch with the people who survived and who've been rebuilding their lives. Those who struggled to find a way to stay, those who left forever, and those who, now the town's being rebuilt, are hoping to come back. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, returning to paradise. Danny, I know you grew up near paradise, so you knew what it was like years before the fire. Can you just describe it for me? What kind of place was it? Paradise was kind of classic small town America. It was a town of about 26,000. And in that part of California, it was considered a really affordable place. It was also known for its antiquing. Part of that is because there were so many seniors there who had lived there so many decades and held on to some great vintage stuff. So there was just a ton of antique stores all over town. Paradise was known for these really great community events, things like the Gold Nugget Days or Johnny Appleseed Days. Johnny Appleseed Days that kicked off in Paradise today with a lot of, of course, pies. This is the oldest ongoing harvest festival in California. The organizers make thousands of pies from Noble Orchards apples. That would draw visitors every year. It was a very friendly, beautiful community, just out of the valley into the mountains, covered with trees. It was a really nice place to visit. Do you know why it's called Paradise? I've heard a few different stories. One of them, I think, was based on this old saloon, the rumor has it, called Pear O' Dice. But the other thing I've heard is from some of the first European descended settlers in the area said that it felt like paradise. And I can see why. There's these beautiful views of these rolling river canyons. You have that shade from the trees. It's a very gorgeous place. So how common was it for wildfires to happen in paradise? How prepared would people have been for that? Well, with that natural beauty that Paradise was known for, the risk of fire went hand in hand with that, right? Mm. Fire is a part of the landscape there. It's been that way for thousands of years. There was a fire in 2008, a wildfire that burned 100 homes. They had evacuation drills that they practiced. The town itself was sectioned off into zones. So there were all these mailers that went out, like, know your zone. So if there was a wildfire and they had to order the evacuation of a particular zone, people would be ready for it. So Paradise went to great lengths to prepare for a future devastating fire. Alistair, The fire became known as the Camp Fire because it started on a road called Camp Creek Road. But its worst effects were in the town of Paradise. And you first went there a few weeks after the fire. What did it look like then? You wind your way up from the Central Valley in California, which is very agricultural. You are in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And then all of a sudden, you start to notice that everything is blackened and that instead of 
buildings, what you have are essentially rectangles of grey ash and maybe there are a few staircases left or chimneys standing in empty space. There are no people around because there had been a mandatory evacuation, roadblocks had been put in place. There had been search and rescue teams that had gone through town and whenever they had located human remains, they had left small flags. Hi. Iris? Hi. Hi. One of the people that I spent time with was Iris Natividad. On the day of the fire, she actually was not in paradise. She had left town for her job a couple hours away, but her partner remained. His name was Andrew Downer. She'd exchanged many phone calls with him. Many of their friends had gotten in touch with him saying, Andrew, Andrew, why don't you leave? And because he was pretty much unable to walk, he'd had a foot amputated. He kept telling his friends and Iris over the phone, I can't leave, I can't leave. And then contact was lost and they didn't hear any more from him. And they found his remains pretty much on the doorstep of his home. So that area right there in the front, Mm -hmm. where the black area is? Yeah. That's where Andrew passed away. Hmm. So he stayed there, and they said that he, um, you know, with all the smoke, he just went to sleep, and then the fire Hmm. took him. You know, I come to the house, Hmm. but, you know, I kind of feel like this is where his spirit is. Yeah. So I do. I still come. still come. You know? yeah. We always felt that he was going to die early, but not in the biggest yeah. event in history in 2018. That certainly wasn't the case. Yeah. You said you felt like his spirit is here. Yeah, I still feel his spirit. What does here. it feel like? I just I feel like warm and fuzzy. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like I actually feel good when I come here. Yeah. yeah. I feel his spirit and my dog's spirit. It's not a weird feeling. Like some people are like, oh, why do you keep going there? Because I, yeah. I feel close, close to them. Yeah, that makes sense. In the remains of their home, you could see what looked like little bits of diamond winking in these grey ashes. And in fact, this was the remains of all their collectible glass that they had spent years building up. I'm just trying to get as much marbles. I feel like an obligation to him to get his his, all his marbles. Yeah. And that's really the only, <laughs> the only thing I really... He lost his marbles. He lost his marbles. Yeah. I'm trying to get his marbles, yeah. He always said that, too. He's like, yeah. oh, I lost my marbles, but I got it over there. <laughs> got 80,000 marbles, so... For a little while, she had been trying to sift through the remains of their belongings, and they had these makeshift sifting devices, almost like you'd go panning for gold for. But she said that in the end, everything was so burnt up that it almost wasn't worthwhile. Yeah. It's just neighborhoods and neighborhoods. I know, it's just, just, they're just all gone, aren't they? Yeah, it's just gone. Yeah. As we drove around town that day, she said that at that point she was still undecided over whether she herself wanted to move back to paradise. The structure of this city that will be different. It's yeah. not going to be seniors. The seniors are, are scared. Mm-hmm. They're not coming back. Right.
The mayor of Paradise is Jody Jones, and she says the city will rebuild, but it's the state and the federal governments that are footing the bill for much of the fire damage, so they may want to say in any rebuilding plan. It wasn't long after the fire that people started talking about rebuilding Paradise. Paradise is almost entirely what CAL FIRE calls a very high fire hazard severity zone. Assemblyman Chu says that raises big questions. I think the challenges with this area being in such a red-hot fire zone, I think there is a legitimate question about whether we should be rebuilding there at all. Some people from Paradise resigned themselves to the idea that their community was gone forever. I mean, now I'm looking at every neighborhood thinking this could burn, you know, the town isn't going to be what it was. It kind of died that day. Other people argued that despite the clear risk that another fire could and probably would happen again, the town should be rebuilt. My family moved there in 1950. So I have been there and on and off for years. And our memories are hard to let go of. And so rebuilding that is like rebuilding a place in your heart. Alastair, tell me about the debate that happened in the town about whether to rebuild it. There wasn't really a debate about whether the town should rebuild. In many ways, I think you could have that debate about so many places in California. If you were being purely utilitarian about it, you could say, well, should this town be there? There's a risk of a wildfire. There's a risk of an earthquake, for instance, in some places. I think ultimately, even top officials in California, they spoke of places like Paradise as somehow being representative of this outdoorsy spirit that prevails in the state. And they accepted that people wanted to live in these places and that in many cases, as had been the case in Paradise, people lived there because they didn't have an option to live anywhere else, owing in part to affordability issues. And so it wasn't really a question of should the town rebuild? It became more of a question of how should the town rebuild? Exciting day starting the planning process for rebuilding our town, so it's wonderful to see so many people wanting to participate. At a planning meeting in February 2019, at a church that had miraculously survived the fire, people spoke passionately in favour of rebuilding. One of the first questions we get is, or folks say, are they really going to rebuild Paradise? And we say, that's not a question. Council made an immediate decision, and the town did, we're going to rebuild Paradise. Town planners were brought in, the same people who'd helped redevelop New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. They pointed out that though the destruction in Paradise was extensive, it wasn't all-encompassing. They'd have foundations to build upon. It took 140 years to build Paradise, and obviously things did survive, like the church here. The town wouldn't merely be rebuilt in the same model, but would be improved. The planners said that they'd listen to what the people from Paradise wanted. It's about what the community wants, not what one person wants, and definitely not about what we want. It's about what you want, but don't feel restricted to think big right now. We can look for other sources of funding outside of the town and even outside of the state, and we can do big things, but we can't do them if no one suggests them. But there was the question of who was going to cover the cost, because the fire had caused $16.5 billion worth of damage. 
The power company whose equipment started the fire in the first place, Pacific General and Electric, would have to pay their share. PG&E has accepted responsibility. They pleaded guilty to more than 80 counts of involuntary manslaughter. They've reached settlements with the town and with the county that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And then for fire victims, this fire came after several other devastating fires that PG&E was also found to be responsible for. And so PG&E settled with the victims of all of these fires. PG&E agreed to a $13.5 billion settlement late last night. The deal covers two of the worst fires in the state's history. Residents of Paradise, people who lived there, have had to go through lawyers to try to get compensated for their losses. The level of compensation varies quite a bit based on where you lived. If you were a homeowner, people who lost relatives also get a different kind of compensation. It has made a pretty substantial difference. With the money from PG&E, as well as contributions by the state and federal governments and private donations, the town could be rebuilt on an ambitious scale. There would be four priorities for those rebuilding paradise. Firstly, making it a safer place to live. People wanted to ensure that the kind of electrical failures that had caused this fire didn't happen again. And so the power company PG&E has undergrounded all of the power lines. So at the very least, that has removed some of the risk another fire of this kind could happen again. People also said in the wake of the fire that perhaps the forest in and around town was too thick and that had helped spread the fire. And so a lot of the trees which were in fact part of the reason that so many people loved the town, they have been taken down in the hope that this will reduce the risk of a fire spreading like it did. Then in terms of the homes, all homes in paradise, as of I think last year, have to be built to this particular standard called wildfire prepared home. And it means that there are ember resistant vents that there's what we call defensible space. And that basically means open space around the house where you don't have flammable things that can catch on fire, where firefighters can get in and defend your home if necessary. Insurance can be difficult. It can be quite expensive. And that's part of the reason why paradises pass these regulations that things have to be built to a certain standard, because they're hoping that insurance companies will see that people are trying to reduce their risk and that they will charge them accordingly. The second priority was getting people back into homes quickly. And the third was keeping the town affordable. One of the big concerns was whether Paradise would remain this affordable refuge it had been for so many years. And I think it really quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to be the case. The city called in an urban design firm and even that firm noted that so much of the housing in town had been what it termed naturally affordable. It was affordable because it wasn't that great often, or it was old. It had just evolved to be a cheaper place, and that with a conscious rebuild of the entire town, the town was just inevitably going to become pricier. The last priority was improving the town's infrastructure. New roads and new schools would be built, and potentially a proper sewage system would be installed because, believe it or not, this town of 27,000 people had, until this point, been running on septic tanks. 
The way Paradise was developed several decades ago is it was a bunch of county homes and then eventually Paradise incorporated into a town. So that means that the way that the homes were built was in some ways kind of haphazard. And Paradise also, unlike most cities in the world, didn't have a sewer system. It now looks like there will be enough funding that Paradise can actually connect to an existing sewage system and join that. That would be pretty monumental for the town. Danny, the project of rebuilding Paradise was obviously going to be lengthy and complex, but it seems notable that given the extent of the damage that it is being rebuilt, wildfires happen a lot in California. There have been more than 6,000 this year. How common is it for towns there to get the funding to be rebuilt? We don't have another example like Paradise. At least before Paradise, there was not really another example of a town in modern California completely destroyed by fire. But unfortunately, there's another town not far from Paradise that I've spent some time in recently. It's about maybe a 45-minute drive from Paradise to a little place called Berry Creek. And Berry Creek was also destroyed by wildfire back in 2020. As far as wildfires go, this was quite shocking. This was a fire that, again, started in a remote canyon. This one was started by lightning, not PG&E. With high winds, it eventually exploded. It just spread rapidly. It created a wall of flames that was eight miles wide. So if that gives you any sense of just the terror of this fire. Yeah. Berry Creek, I should say, is a very, very remote settlement of about 2,000 people. It's deep in the mountains. A lot of people don't have internet. Phone service is not great. And it also is a very impoverished community. About a third of the residents live in poverty. This is a place where people priced out of pretty much every other part of the county and to some extent priced out of a lot of other areas of California moved because they could afford to buy a piece of land and either build a house or camp on their land. Ultimately, 16 people died in that fire. When Berry Creek burned in 2020, the entire West Coast was just facing a barrage of wildfires. So this is the same fire season where we saw those really eerie orange skies in most West Coast cities, San Francisco, Portland. Amid all of that, Berry Creek burns, and there was just so much happening that I don't think it attracted quite the same level of sustained attention that Paradise did, and it also ultimately didn't attract the same level of support. Because Paradise's fire was caused by a power company, that power company was liable for their losses and, as I said, has had to pay billions mm-hmm. of dollars to try to make that right. But, you know, in Barry Creek's case, this was a lightning fire. There isn't a power company to sue. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, in the case of Barry Creek, this is a community that was struggling before the fire financially and today has really been struggling to rebuild. The other factor is that after the campfire, A lot of people in Berry Creek, their insurance agencies canceled their policies. They wouldn't honor them anymore because of the risk. And so, yeah, so many people didn't have insurance and really had no resources after the fire. And it's just been really hard for them. Danny, 
Danny, the fire in paradise started because of the failings of a power company, but it spread so rapidly in part because of the dry conditions caused by the climate crisis. That town got compensation from PG&E, but most places destroyed or badly damaged by wildfire, like Berry Creek, won't get that sort of funding. Seeing as wildfires are becoming more prevalent and more intense across the world, do we just have to get used to them? To some extent, yes. With the climate crisis, there is a certain level of change that I think is just already baked into the system, right? No matter if we stopped our emissions today, we still live in a changing climate. We still live in a climate that is hotter and drier, both conditions that lend themselves to more explosive, deadly fires. Unfortunately, Paradise, Berry Creek, Lahaina, these will not be the last places lost to fire. But I don't think that that should fuel a sense of hopelessness. There are things that we can do. There are things that government can do to help make fires less deadly, to help people better survive fires. In California, one of the things that people have been really focused on in the last few years is what we call prescribed fire. Mm. That's this idea that, as I said, fire is a part of the landscape here in California, right? Before European colonization, indigenous tribes in California burned tens of millions of acres every year to keep the forest in a more healthy state. Then 100 years ago, the Forest Service instituted basically a zero fire policy that there should be no fire on the land. And what that did is it led to these really thick, overgrown forests that were not healthy and we're still suffering the consequences of those decisions. So today, that's one of the things that a lot of governments in California, a lot of local governments, and a lot of tribes are really focused on is trying to bring as much prescribed fire, good fire, back to the landscape as possible. Because that means when a deadly fire or when a very destructive fire rolls through, that can temper some of the worst effects of that. Coming up, five years on, Why people from Paradise think going back is worth the risk. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. 
It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Danny, it's five years since the fire in paradise. What does the town look like now? Well, it looks quite different than it did five years ago. Driving in, I notice those empty spaces. But then you see an antique store, of course. You see restaurants. There are businesses that have come back. There's some beautiful murals around town. And then getting off the main road into the more residential areas, what I'm really struck by is these beautiful homes that have popped up. It kind of feels like watching HGTV Fixer Upper. There's all these beautiful (laughs) modern farmhouses everywhere. How many people have moved back to Paradise? So as of today, the latest numbers I've heard from the town is that about 9,100 people live in Paradise. Right. And some of those are people who've chosen to return, people who were very committed to going back. But we don't actually know how many people were residents of the area before and how many people are moving there for the first time. From what I hear from people in town and from local government is that they are getting people moving from the Bay Area and other big cities where costs are quite high. $500,000 in the Bay Area might not get you much, but in Paradise, it'll get you a beautiful four-bedroom home. One of the people I talked to is a man named Stephen Murray who has lived in Paradise since he was a child. So I am 47. I moved Mm -hmm. here when I was 11 in 1987. Before the fire, he was a renter. And with that settlement, he's been able to buy his own home in Paradise. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's where I'm talking about grass isn't always green on the other side. It's my kids have a park, their schools, there's still football games. He, for one, is really committed to keeping some element of old paradise in there. He wants it to be the sort of place where his friends and family and he himself can afford to live. That's something that's really important to him. He's a contractor, and he told me that he's actually turned down some jobs from people who wanted to build basically these mega mansions that no one that he knew would be able to afford. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't do that, because that would turn paradise into a place that he wouldn't know anymore. But I will say there were people who have struggled to get back on their feet. Stephen helped his mother-in-law secure housing in Paradise, believing that they were going to have a certain amount of money from PG&E by a certain date. Well, that hasn't happened. And now it looks like his mother-in-law might not be able to stay in Paradise because they just can't afford it. And so that's a problem that we're faced with right now Mm -hmm. that is stressful because... If we just had our money, we can move forward. Danny, this fire killed 85 people. And thinking about Iris, who we heard from earlier, she's had to find a way to cope with losing her partner in such 
a horrific circumstance. For so many people who lived in the town, it's a similar story. They'll have lost people that they loved. And I can understand why the memories of that would just be too painful to make it possible for them to ever go back. But other people have. Why do you think that is? The folks I know in paradise, both people I've spent a lot of time interviewing and friends, I always ask them, how do you do it, right? What makes you want to return to a place that saw this deadly fire, a site of tremendous pain for you? And I'm always so struck by their resilience. A lot of the people I talk to are just so climate aware. They say that we're going to see this all over California now, right? So I would like to be in the community that I know and the place that I love and to figure out how to make it a great place again and how to make it a safe place. I often hear people say, you have tornadoes in the Midwest, you have hurricanes in the South, and here we have fires and we can learn to live with that. And I think there's some truth in that. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to Danny Anguiano and Alastair G. They've written a book together about this. It's called Fire in Paradise, An American Tragedy. And you can read more from them as well at theguardian.com. That's it for today. I'm Hannah Moore, and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.